Oh, what a good night, huh? It's a good night. Hey, if you got your Bibles with you, open up to uh, Revelation chapter 4. Uh, we're going to spend one more evening discussing uh, verse 1 and what I think is uh, the <clears throat> highlight to what we call the, the rapture of the church. Tonight we're going to be talking about the doctrine of imminency. Uh, so hang on to your hats. We'll get to that in just a second. But as we come to it, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 again. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the, and the first verse which, or voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after these things. Uh, each time we've come together, we've, we've begun our discussion in this way. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, gives us an outline of the book. In the outline of the book, in Revelation 1, 19, Jesus tells John, Write the things which you have seen, part 1, the things which are, part 2, the things which will take place after these things, part 3. So when we take a look at it, the things which you have seen is Revelation chapter 1, right? What was it that he saw? A vision of Jesus Christ, right? So we have the resurrected Christ, returning Christ, seen for us in chapter 1 of Revelation. The things which you have seen. Then he's to write the things which are. So he has seven dictations, if you will, seven letters dictated from Jesus to John. Seven letters to seven churches. Which span not only church history, but also were important for that time, right? For It was a letter to each of those churches who were there at that moment, at that time, that were being spoken to or receiving uh, an exhortation from Jesus Christ, the head of the church, right? So that's, that's important. We want to see those things. And we remember as we went through that, the things which are, remember that they all end with a phrase that tells us that each one of those letters is also has us in focus. What was it that they say at the end? Let him who has what? Ears. How many of us got ears? Oh, that gets us all, right? So we all got ears. Hear what the Spirit is saying to who? Churches, right? To the churches. It's, it says seven letters that were to go not only to those seven places, but I think it also incorporates within each letter the challenges that we can find within the church in any given moment. That's the second division of the book. Chapter 1, the vision of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches. Now as we come to chapter 4, we've talked about this for a couple of weeks, the church is going to fall off of the pages of Revelation until we get in uh, to, to the end of, of chapter 19 and beginning of 20. So it's going to be off the... The, the books, and we're going to see something different taking place. Now, the third division of the book was write down the things which will take place when? After these things. Now, we don't have to do a lot of gymnastics for that, do we? If we look at that sentence, write the things which you have seen. Subject to that first part, things. Same word, tauda. Write the things which you have seen. We said what that was, right? The vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Write the things which are, Tauda, the seven letters to the seven churches. And in the third division, uh, write the things which will take place, Meta Tauda, after these things. <clears throat> after the church, after the vision, we have the rest of the book. Chapter 4 through 22 is the third division of the book of Revelation. I'm just going to try to break it down for you as we work our way through so that we can clearly see those things. Next week, we'll begin discussing uh, the text itself in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, which I believe shows us the church in heaven. So chapter 4 and 5, from what I see exegetically in the text, we have the church in heaven. Chapter 6 through 19, I'm, I'm, I've kind of changed the way I, I talk about this because it helps alleviate some confusion. So catch this. Chapter 6 through 19 is the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, we call that the tribulation period. But everybody wants to start arguing about whether the tribulation period is seven years or three and a half years and how that all relates. And I don't have to argue about the 70th week of Daniel, do I? How long is a week? 
Seven days. Seven years in, 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 in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, when we look at the 70 weeks that are written out there for us. So, chapter 6 through 19 is the 70th week of Daniel. Now, I want you to remember, now we think back to when we studied Daniel. Daniel also, in Daniel chapter 9, it says, 70 weeks are determined for who? Your people, who was Daniel's people? Israel, right? And for your holy city. So what city is that? Jerusalem. Okay, so we got Israel, Jerusalem. We know what the focus is of the 70 weeks of Daniel. The 70 weeks of Daniel are again divided into threes. <clears throat> when you got a chance, look at Daniel chapter 9. From roughly, I think it's verse 25 through 27, something like that. It lays out the 70 week prophecy. It is divided into one, the first group. There will be seven weeks. The second group. Then there will be 62 weeks. It's in series. So we have seven and 62, which equals 69, which if we have 70 weeks, leaves what left? One week. Okay, so we have seven weeks in the beginning of Daniel's prophecy. That seven-week period is when the temple is rebuilt and the walls and the streets in troublesome times. Then it says, 62 weeks after that, what happens? Messiah comes. Messiah comes. So we, we shown you if, you, if you follow along with Sir Robert Anderson, he wrote a book, a book called The Coming Prince. If you agree with his formula, then April 6, 32 AD is what he has come up with as the day Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Four days later, what happens? Right, we got a crucifixion coming, right? Just, just a few days after he comes, he's headed to the crucifixion. So we have the entrance of Messiah officially. Now, why do I say it's officially? Because every time they tried to tell Jesus, hey, you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah, what did he tell them to do? Shh. Except for one day. On one day, he said, when the Pharisees said, hey, you need to quiet these guys down and tell them to be quiet. They're all proclaiming you as Messiah. You remember what Jesus said? If I tell them to be quiet, what will happen? The rocks will cry out. That's a different response, right? So there's something special about that day. And I happen to agree with Sir Robert Anderson. I think that that, that is what Daniel was prophesying when he told us the coming Messiah would come at 69 weeks. Now I know that there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. The reason I know that there is a gap is because after Messiah comes and the people say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of David, right? The son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a messianic psalm they're declaring over him. The reason I know there's a gap is something happened after they saw Messiah and they laid down their palm branches, and they laid down their clothes, what happens next? The Bible tells in Daniel chapter 9, Messiah will be cut off. Karat. That's the word, the Hebrew word. Sounds just like cut off, right? It's spelled like carrot. Well, not really, because Hebrew letters are different. But if I transcribe them, that's kind of like that. So, he is cut off between the 69th and the 70th week. Now, something else. We're told something else is going to happen in that gap. What else are we told? In Daniel's prophecy, in Daniel chapter 9, we're also told that the people of the prince who is to come, which is a reference to, to the Antichrist, <clears throat> a people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So what happened? What else is going to happen in that gap? The city is going to be destroyed. And the sanctuary, the temple, is going to be destroyed. So when did that take place? 70 AD. Jesus told them it was going to happen, right? It was prophesied through his ministry here on earth. So in the gap from the time Messiah is recognized, and the people proclaim him, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. There was a particular day that God had in mind when he was, when he was giving that psalm to the people. So we see... In that gap, the death of Messiah, the destruction of the city, and thirdly, a dispersion. A dispersion of the people. The city's destroyed, the temple's destroyed, and the people are dispersed. Where do they go? Like a flood. That's the picture he gives us, like a flood. You ever seen a flood hit the desert? Okay, this is not the desert. 
You ever seen a flood really hit real desert? Like if you go to, I, I forget what, um, what, uh, uh, it was one of them, I don't, not History Channel, like National Geographic or something. They had something out on, in the Nagib Desert about the floods that come through and literally the floods will flood all through and then they go head out to the desert. And it just goes for a ways and pretty soon it just gets swallowed by the sand. It don't go all the way through, but what, it just gets, you see the water start to spread out. And then you spread out water over the sand, and the sand of the desert is thirsty, right? Just goes away. The picture in Daniel is that the people will spread like a dispersion. They're just going to be spread out and go away. Now, for the next almost 2,000 years, there was no nation of Israel. It's gone. 70 A.D.? Until, what was it, 1940 what? 1948? No nation. Gone. Those three things happen after Messiah is recognized and before the 70th week. So what starts the 70th week, we say? How do we know when the 70th week begins? Well, we, we go back to Daniel chapter 9, and let's just look at it together real quickly. Daniel 9, 27 says, Then he, this is referring to the prince who is to come, then he shall confirm a covenant with many, for how long? One week. So I told you 69 weeks are over, what's left? One week. How long is that week? Seven. Now, remember the words here in Daniel, this is uh, the picture of a a hepstead, uh, a week of years, seven years. Like we say decade, they they call that a week. So it's seven years. So he says, he, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with the many. There's a definite article in in the Hebrew that you don't see there. The many is a reference to the nation of Israel. He will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. He's going to come. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. When we get to Daniel, or when we get to Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, you're going to see a, a man riding in on a white horse, carrying a bow, right? And he's going to be coming in. The, the concept is exactly what I think Daniel 9.27 is coming. He's not coming in like he's bringing war. What's he coming in like he's bringing? Peace. Peace. He's going to make a peace treaty... With the nation of Israel for seven years. Now we know this part, right? In the middle of the week, what's he do to it? He breaks it. That's not shocking, right? What does everybody do with a peace treaty sooner or later? There's no point in making a peace treaty last very long, is there? Just think to our own history. How many times have we break treaties with, uh, with the Indians? Did we ever not break one? What about, well, surely we, we, we're, we wouldn't do it today. Oh, unless you live in North Dakota, right? Or, and in which case, then we'll do whatever we want to, right? So, in the middle of the week, <clears throat> he's going to break it. Listen, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations will be one that makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, which means once this clock starts, it's going to finish. It, does, it means it's not going to start and stop, start and stop. It's going to start, and then it's decreed. Once it begins, seven years it ends. What does it end with? The return of Jesus Christ as the King. Right? That's the, that's the great uh, promise we have in Scripture. So even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now what we have to ask ourselves, as we develop this concept of what this 70th week is about... This time period we also call the tribulation, not because it is a tribulation, right? But it is the tribulation. Most other tribulations happen locally. Would you agree? Like you, you have tribulation in your life. I have tribulation in my life. It's kind of centered locally around me or maybe around certain countries. But the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 3, speaking to the church of Philadelphia, that they should pray that they would be counted worthy to escape... The tribulation, which would do what? Come upon how much? The whole world. That's big tribulation. Right? So we want to understand, what is that period for? Because most of the problems that we have 
with our eschatology, the study of end times, and understanding how all these events wrap up, the problem that we have is we start trying to incorporate other ideas into that 70th week of Daniel rather than what the Bible tells us. What was the 70th week of Daniel for? Was it for the church? What is it that Daniel said? These 70 weeks are determined for who? For Israel, for you, and the holy city. And he gives us six things that are going to be accomplished during that 70th week. And those six things are all going to take place and deal and focus around the nation of Israel. So what's taking place? Well, this is what's taking place. Chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation. God is breaking into time, judging a wicked world, and restoring Israel. That's what's happening. In Revelation chapter 6, we are told that the men, that's the first chapter of the first part of the tribulation, are going to beg the rocks to fall on them. <coughs> Excuse me. They're going to try to hide in the earth and hide from the wrath of the Lamb. It's a period of the wrath of God. The Bible is very clear. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 tells us that we are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a certain promise that God has gifted. So we want to make sure we have that in view as we work our way through the book of Revelation. Remember, there are 480 allusions to the Old Testament, most of those to the book of Daniel. So if we don't understand the book of Daniel, we don't understand Ezekiel, we don't understand Isaiah, we haven't spent any time in the Old Testament, we're going to struggle with the concepts that we look at in the book of Revelation. But they are all uh, pictured for us in the Old Testament. So let's get back to that, let's get back to that outline. We got four and five, the church in heaven, six through 19, the 70th week of Daniel. <clears throat> 19 is the physical return of Jesus Christ. His feet hit the ground. His feet hit the ground in Basra. He's going to walk through Basra alone. He's going to walk from through Basra. In fact, when you guys come with me to Israel, the folks who are going, this is exciting, because we're going to get a chance to look at it. And you're going to say, wow, I didn't really understand how big that place was. But it's big. So we're going to look over at from Basra through the Jezreel Valley. There's a period, a place of land out there <clears throat> called Har Megiddo, which means the mountain of Megiddo. The valley beneath it is called Armageddon, right? That's what we call it. Armageddon. So he's going to walk through Basra. Now the Bible describes that to us. As he's walking up toward Israel, they're going to ask him, Who is this that's coming from Basra? And his clothes are, are spattered. You're, you're, you're all covered with blood. And he says, It is I, Messiah, mighty to save. I have trampled the grapes of the wrath of God alone. And the Bible describes it. As he comes up through Basra to Jerusalem, comes up into the city before his feet hit the Mount of Olives, it says that the blood is going to flow to what? The horse's bridle. That's a bloody place, right? As he tramples the grapes of wrath, because all the nations, we're going to see as we go through Revelation, all the nations of the world are gathered against Israel to wipe Israel out. This is about the restoration of Israel. God is coming to save Israel. That's why Paul would say, all of Israel will be saved. He's talking about uh, a, a nation. A nation. All who are Israel. Not all who claim to be anymore and all who claim to be Christian are saved. We good on that? Only if you're in Christ are you saved. Only ones who are in Israel will be saved. All of Israel is going to be saved. We'll develop that idea a little more as we go on. So 19, we have Jesus' physical return. Comes through Basra, the Battle of Armageddon. We read about it in chapter 19. Chapter 20, 
Jesus sets up a kingdom. Physical kingdom. Thousand years. On his earth. He rules and reigns as king. The Bible tells us that we'll be with him. We're going to sit on thrones with him. We're going to rule and reign together with Christ. At the end of the kingdom age, at the end of a thousand years, Satan is loosed for a season. The people rebel. And immediately we go into something called the great white throne judgment. Have we heard about that before? The great white throne judgment is the judgment of unbelievers who stand before a holy God and get what they've always wanted. An eternity separated from him. That place is called the lake of fire. Where the devil and his angels will go. Where the unbeliever will go. All those whose names are not written where? In the Lamb's book of life. They all go into the lake of fire uh, to be eternally separated from the Lord. That's chapter 20. Chapter 21 and 22, we see a new beginning. A new heaven and a new earth. Jesus from the throne says, See, I make how many things? All things new. New heaven and a new earth, and we all live happily ever after. That's the book of Revelation in a nutshell. That's the outline, working our way through, having a concept about where it goes. So we want to have that in view as we work our way through the text. In chapter 4, we're in the final section. John is told, come up here. John, I think, and this I'm not saying this is my proof text, guys, for the rapture, but I think it definitely pictures it. John is told to come up here, and for the rest of this 70th week of Daniel, where is John? In heaven. He's in heaven receiving the vision that is given to him. So, we come to what we're here for tonight. That's a long introduction. Here we go. <coughs> Let's keep in focus the rapture questions, what we've been discussing. So, we have discussed the cultural context. Two weeks ago, remember, the picture of the Jewish wedding. That's a cultural context through which lens we need to look at Scripture. We can't take Scripture out of the cultural context and put it in a 21st century context and say what it means. we got to keep it in its cultural context. What did it mean to them? What did it mean to the Jews? What did it mean to the people who were reading it? So we discussed that. Last week, we discussed the exegetical information scripturally, looking at the word harpazo, I gave you several scriptures where harpazo is found and what it, what is happening with that word every time is someone is being caught up, snatched up, taken away. The same scripture we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, right? In the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians tells us, 1 Thessalonians tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be Caught up in the air together. Caught up is that word. Harpasso. And we also looked at Old Testament pictures to demonstrate it. Remember? The idea that God knows how to deliver His own from judgment. We saw Lot taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember? Physically grabbed a hold of and drug out of the city. We looked at Enoch taken out prior to the flood in Genesis. There's other examples, but those were limited by time. So those were the ones we gave tonight. We're going to look at imminency. Now, here's what I mean by imminency. The doctrine of imminency is simply this. Something that is going to happen that can happen at any moment. Something that is going to happen that can happen at any moment. What do I mean? Just what it sounds like. It's a signless... There's no prophecies that have to take place. The return of Jesus Christ for His church can occur at any time. Any time. That's the idea of imminence. It doesn't have to happen today. It can happen tomorrow, but nothing stops it from happening today. So Jesus can come at any moment. The rapture of the church is a signless event. There's no prophecies that got to take place prior to it happening. So biblically speaking, there's nothing hindering the return of Christ. And we want to show that, not from our opinions, because our opinions don't matter so much, as what does the Word have to say about it. 
What is it that God's word has to tell us about this? So, this understanding, Jesus can come at any moment. There's no sign that we're looking for, for his return for the church. There are signs we're looking for, for his return on earth, right? When he comes through Armageddon, there's things that got to happen before that happens, right? If you spend a little time and study in the word, here's what you're going to discover. There's a, a day that is talked about over and over and over again in scripture where we're told that no man knows the time. But then there's another day that is spoken of in Scripture that we're told should know. And we're going to see that as we work our way through Revelation. There's a day that no one knows. And there's a day that some people should know. Certain people should recognize. So we want to have eyes for that as we work our way through Scripture. We probably won't get into that too much tonight. But let me give you a little, a, a little glimpse of it. In Matthew chapter 24... We're told that no one knows the time of, of this particular day. Who doesn't know it? Unbelievers don't know it. And the believers don't know it. Unbelievers don't know it because they could care less. Believers don't know it because the Bible says nobody knows the time. Only the Father knows the time in which Jesus Christ will return. That return he's talking about is not the second coming. We know when the second coming happens. I just read you Daniel, three and a half years after the Antichrist declares himself to be God in the Holy of Holies of the temple, Jesus comes back. I know that day. What day don't I know? What day is there no sign for? The rapture, the calling of the church to Jesus Christ as he comes for his bride, just like we discussed in the cultural context. How did that work out? In the wedding. We see pictures of that throughout the scripture. In fact, in Matthew 25, you have a parable dealing with how ten virgins. You remember the parable? And what happens? In the middle of the night, who comes to them? See, we don't do it like this, right? We don't do a wedding in the middle of the night, do we? So the bridegroom comes for his bride in the middle of the night, tries to surprise her. Her job is to be ready. Get up, come down. Woo, big party and parade going back to the father's house where the wedding takes place where they're sequestered for a time. Then they come out, and they have the marriage supper. So we see it. We read about it in Matthew chapter 25. So Jesus says over and over again that we're to do what? Watch. And do what? Be ready. Why? Because you don't know when. You don't know when. The point is, there's only one of all the views that look at the rapture. There's only one view of the rapture where the rapture can happen anytime. And that's pre-tribulational. <clears throat> Otherwise, we're waiting for a sign. And me and John always joke. I always say, look, I can adjust my eschatology as we go. But I don't. Yeah, John can't. That's okay. They, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> So as we work our way through it, as we work our way through it, we just want to say, what is it that the Scripture is laying out for? So let's look at the words of Jesus describing the imminent return, that it could happen at any time. Let's look at it. John 14, 1 through 3. We looked at this last time. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. Remember the cultural context. What did the, what did the bridegroom do before he came for his bride? He went and prepared her a place. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Was there any gift or any, any issue from the time he went to go uh, build a, the place, make the addition at the father's house for the bride, was there anything he said had to happen first? He said, I go, I prepare a place, and what? I'm coming again. I go, I prepare a place, I come again. So because of this, uh, believers are to look for the Lord. We're to be looking to Him <coughs> as that glorious hope. If we were waiting for a sign, what, would we, what sign would we be looking for? Some people are. What sign will we be looking for? We're looking for the Antichrist. Do you really think that's what God wants us to do? Hey guys, I want you to spend your time watching for the Antichrist. No. Who should we be looking for? 
Jesus Christ. We should have our eyes peeled on Him. Titus. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 13. says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, <clears throat> righteously and godly in the present age, looking for our blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to be looking for? Jesus Christ. Not looking for a sign, not, not listening for other things. We're looking for Jesus. We want to see Him. We're looking for that day when we see Him face to face. And so Jesus commands us to watch and wait for His return. Again, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 42. It says, watch therefore for you. I want you to pay attention to pronouns. Sometimes when we spend time reading the Bible, we don't pay attention to what we're reading. So it says you. He's specifically speaking to the disciples. This is the Olivet Discourse. The disciples had a couple of questions to ask him. He's talking to them. You, the disciples of Christ. He says, you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Who is he talking to? The context, he's talking to the disciples. He's telling the disciples. In the day when the disciples were sitting in front of him, he looked at those guys who were there then, and he said, you don't know when the Lord is coming back. What does that mean? That he can come back when? Any time. Any time. He said, you don't know when your Lord is coming. But know this. <clears throat> if the master of the house had known when the, when, at what hour the thief would come, <clears throat> he, not you, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Look at the pronoun change. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect it. So the general rule of thumb is, don't date pick. A date pick is a guarantee that that's not the day. Right? The Bible says no man's going to know. You're not going to come up with some amazing formula. that All it does is sell books to Christians. It's crazy. Anybody remember 1988? 88 reasons Jesus was coming back in 88. What year is it now? So that... That it's no longer, you can't buy it anymore, by the way. Not too many people are looking for it anyway. <clears throat> so we don't, we're not date picking. What does he say? He's coming at an hour when? You don't expect. That's a day you don't know when it's coming. If this is the second coming, I know when the second coming is. The second coming is at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. The second coming, we can, we can count the days. Jesus said 1,260 days, three and a half years from that moment of the de uh, abomination of desolation to the return of Jesus. I can count that. I can count that far. But here, you don't know the hour. Matthew 24, verse 45. So who then is a wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household? To give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. So what is it this servant is supposed to be doing? Taking care of feeding people, right? He's supposed to give them food in due season. He's supposed to be busy doing the work that the master's given him to do until what? Until the master comes. Sounds interesting, right? Blessed is that servant whom... His master, when he comes, will find so doing. Verse 47. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. Now look at verse 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. He can't come today. He's not coming now. He, he, he's certainly not going to be here today. If that wicked servant says my master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with a drunkard, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. 
Doesn't say when he's not ready. What's it say? When he's not looking. What is our glorious hope? To be looking for who? Jesus. When? Every day. Every day. Looking for the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says a wicked servant says, Ah, he's not coming now. He's not coming now and he begins to kind of backslide a little bit, right? Pretty soon he's getting drunk and beating other servants and he's not behaving as he should. And it says the master will come when he's not looking. See, slowly he quits looking for the master. He stops looking for the glorious appearing. He stops thinking about the return of his master. And so he comes at an hour that he is not aware of. And he will be cut in two. And his portion will be given to the hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? What's that mean? The play actors. The pretenders. The ones who said they were in. But then come when the Lord comes. They say, Lord, Lord. Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do all these works in your name? Didn't I heal people in your name? And the Lord's going to say to them, Depart from me, you, listen, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You fooled yourself, but we don't fool God, right? Nope, God can tell. God knows who are His. So Matthew 25, 13, at the end of the parable of the ten virgins, what does it say? Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming. So what is it that Jesus is telling His disciples to do? Watch! For who? Him! He... Oh, I almost threw my glasses. <laughs> he, I don't know where, what I had done then. I cannot see not a word without him. So he's saying, look, watch. Why? I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. What do he say? I will come again. So when I, I want you to do what? Do what I've told you to do until I come back. Right? So that we got our marching orders, right? What did he give us at the end of the book of Matthew? Matthew 28, what did he do? Sit around and, and uh, uh, watch as much Netflix as you possibly can in a given day? What did he say? He didn't, there's nothing in there about binge watching, is there? It says to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Right? We got marching orders. Go feed the people. Give them the food that they need until your master comes. And what's our motivation? Because when, when my master returns, I want to be found doing what he asked me to do. That's the, so Jesus said, how you're going to know to be doing that? Look for me every day. Makes a difference, right? Look, if I think Kathy is coming home at any given moment, the house will be cleaner. If I know Kathy's not coming till the end of the week... I did not do the dishes the first day, the second day, the third day. I haven't even cleared the table. Come to my house. You can see. Well, not now. She's home. <coughs> if she's gone, and I know she's not coming back, so here's confessional time. I'm not taking care of any of the things I think I need to do when she's there. But when I know she's coming, yeah, I pick it up. I want it clean. So if I think she's coming every day... Oh, Kathy might be here today. Ah, I gotta pick up my socks. I gotta put my, I gotta put my shoes where they go. If she's not home, I come in the door and there's a trail from the front door to the lazy boy of whatever I peeled off. Shoes, sweatshirt, jacket. Where is it? Just laying there. I'm gonna grab it tomorrow. I need it again. And I sat down in the lazy boy and man, I'm thinking, wow, that was easy. But if I know she's coming, oh no. My shoes have a place. If my shoes are not in that place, I'll never find them again. Because she'll put them someplace else. So, right? So when we're looking, it changes how we behave, don't it? It does. Luke 21, verse 36. Jesus says, Watch therefore, listen, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things which will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Watch. Be ready. You know, people often tell me, we often say things in the church, um, 
We don't quite get right. We say things like, <clears throat> we focus on judge not, that you not be judged. That's probably not where we should, especially in the church, guys. Do you know that the Bible says judgment begins in the house of God? So that whole judge not thing don't work here. In fact, what the Bible says is if you would judge yourself, you wouldn't be judged. What's that mean? It means I really need to take a, a, a close look at who I really am, consider who I really am, and make that relationship right with God, right? So that I don't get judged. I'm going to judge myself. I'm going to judge myself. I want to pray. I want to be focused. My relationship with God is a serious thing, right? It's not something we just put on the back shelf. It's something we take seriously. Okay, these are all words from Jesus that we just looked at, which seem to indicate, be ready, because I could come at any time. Can we agree on that? Be ready, I can come at any time. So let's look at the words of Paul. The words of Paul that reflect this same idea. Paul wrote with expectation, Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which... Pay attention to the pronouns. What's that pronoun? We also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Paul waiting for his Savior? Yes. Was Paul looking for his Savior? Yes. Why? Because that's what Jesus told him to do. That's what he told the Thessalonians to do. That's why we read that section of Scripture discussing, watching, and being ready. So Paul is waiting He's looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how Paul is living his life. That's how Paul's living his life. First Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers, what's the pronoun? Us. From the wrath to come. Was he expecting that 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 wrath, that period of wrath, that 70th week of Daniel could have come in his lifetime? Sure. He's thinking it could come. And who was going to deliver them from that wrath? Jesus. And was Jesus only delivering some of them? He says, Jesus who will deliver who? Us. He include himself in that idea? So we see that he has an expectation, doesn't he? He has an expectation that these events are coming. Paul hoped to be involved in the rapture. Now he knew he didn't have to be. Jesus is going to come when Jesus comes. But he was hoping that he would be a part of that. He did not know when, but he believed it was possible that he could see it. We see it in what he wrote. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52 Behold, I tell you a mystery. What's the pronoun? We shall not all sleep. Okay, shall I tell you what that means? We won't all die. He didn't say you. He said, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure my goose is cooked. He said, we, we are not all, <coughs> excuse me, we will not all sleep. But then what does he say? But we, we shall all be changed. We won't all die. But we're all going to be translated. We're all going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible. And what's he say? We shall be changed. Now when he's writing this, I doubt that Paul's thinking about us reading it 2,000 years later. I think Paul's thinking, man, this is something that can happen in our lifetime. So we want to keep our eyes Looking for Jesus, doing what he's asked us to do, so that when he comes, we're found to be ready. Because we're doing what it is God has asked of us. So he placed himself in those categories. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That's kind of an important phrase, and I'd love to camp there for a while, but I'm running out of time. So... Paul's saying, I got this doctrine from who? The word of the Lord. I got this from the Lord. He doesn't say, I got this from reading Genesis. 
I got this out of the Old Testament text. I'm not saying that there's not pictures of it there. I, I showed you that there were. But he said, I got this from the Lord. The Lord showed me, verse 15, I got this by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, see the pronoun, don't miss it, but we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed those who are asleep. What category did Paul put himself in? We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed. We're not better than or more exalted than those, those who have died before us. Man, he's put himself in the category that is looking for the return of the Lord at any moment. That he could come at any time. Paul thought he might be alive. Paul thought he might be alive together with the Thessalonians. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you, the church of Thessalonica, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Man, here's our joy, being together when Jesus comes back. All going to be there together when Jesus returns. So when I look at the doctrine of imminency, the things Jesus said, the things Paul said, the idea of looking for the return of Christ without any sign that precedes it, that plants me in the camp of a pre-tribulational rapture guy. So that when the rapture is coming prior to the 70th week of Daniel beginning... When God turns his attention to the restoration of the nation of Israel. The bride of Christ is a separate and distinct saved group. Doesn't mean that the Old Testament saints aren't saved. They're Old Testament saints. Doesn't mean that people won't be saved during the tribulation. Albeit, those people I don't believe will be ones who have heard the gospel before. Because 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we don't have a lot of time to get into it, but God says He'll give strong delusion to those who did not have a love for the truth. You didn't have ears to hear? You didn't you suppress the truth, like it says in, in Romans chapter 1? Then what did God say He would do to them? I'll turn them over to a debased heart to do the things which aren't fitting. But there are other people who haven't had an opportunity, right? There are other people maybe who haven't heard the gospel. That's still going to go out. We see 144,000, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to go into the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only way anybody's ever saved. But they're not the church. The church, the bride, is having her wedding day in the Father's house with the groom sequestered away until her week is fulfilled. Just like it says in Genesis when we talk about Rachel and Leah. And when that week is fulfilled, she's going to be presented. Christ is going to return. The Old Testament saints will be raised. The marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. And the kingdom of God will happen. And so the reason, (coughs) excuse me, that I hold to that Primarily, not only, but primarily, is the idea of imminency. Nothing stops him from coming. If the Lord should tarry and other things begin to happen, I'll still say nothing stops him from coming today. Nothing stops him from coming today. That's how he wants his bride to live always looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ as a side note sometimes there's a lot of discussion about the idea pre-tribulational rapture is a late idea came out in the 17th 18th century but the reality is the first time the first time the pre-tribulational rapture is written about it's the writings of Ephraim of Nisibius in 300, which is pretty early. 
pretty early. Most of the Gospels we have it by 100. <clears throat> so you have the idea being written pretty early to the original text being given. So, anyways, the point is, none of this divides us from one way or another. We'll all agree in the end. Amen. Right? We're all going to agree at the end. <clears throat> Nobody's going to have any disagreements when we're standing in front of Jesus. We're all going to have solid eschatology. Okay? But what's the point? Let's be ready. Let's be ready. Let's be looking. Let's be busy doing the things Jesus Christ has asked us to do. Because, just like John in Revelation 4.1, there will be a day when the door of heaven will be open. And a voice like a trumpet is going to say to his church, Come up here. And on that day, we do what he says. Right? When he said, let there be light, light happened. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus didn't argue, did he? Yep. Wouldn't have mattered anyway. He floated out. Right? Because he told the disciples, go take the grave cloths off him. He can't walk. So, when God speaks, it happens. So we want to hold fast to that. Keep our eyes looking for Jesus Christ next week. We'll begin to take a look at the 24 elders and who they are in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. (coughs) God, pray that we would be faithful. Men and women, rightly dividing the word of truth. God, looking for and hastening the day of your appearing. God, was we... May we live our lives, even as 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-3 through 3 tell us, that everyone who has this hope within himself purifies himself, even as he is pure. When we look for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it changes how we live. So God, may we be your servants who are found so doing when the Master calls. That you would be glorified in all we say and do. And we give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.